Welcome back to GEMcast. I'm Christina Shenvey, and I'm back with Brian Hong talking about eye emergencies in the elderly, part two. But first, I wanted to thank Life in the Fast Lane for including our eye emergencies, part one, as one of the best FOMED picks of the week. And if you are not familiar with Life in the Fast Lane, it is one of the best and most read blogs in emergency medicine in the world. And the web address is lifeinthefastlane.com. For our next case, we're going to talk about a couple other causes of sudden painless vision loss and how to differentiate them. So this, let's say we're in a younger patient, a 55-year-old male, and he comes in because of sudden painless vision loss. So other than the temporal arteritis that we talked about, what are some of the more common causes of sudden painless vision loss and how do you differentiate them on exam? The two major categories are central retinal artery occlusion and central retinal vein occlusion. So if somebody has sudden painless vision loss, it's extremely unlikely that it's, let's say, a tumor that's compressing the optic nerve or something that's more slowly growing. It's usually a vascular insult. So whether it's arterial or venous in nature, both of these things can happen rather quickly. They're a little bit hard to differentiate without doing an exam. Usually the retinal artery occlusion tends to have much worse vision. The range of counting fingers to bare light perception in about 95% of eyes can occur over a couple of seconds. And key historical feature is that these people may have experienced transient visual loss, like an amaurosis fugax kind of picture in the past. In addition to that, if you can get a look at the fundus again, if you look at the macula, these people typically have a cherry red spot in the middle of their macula. And why it, is that? It says like a, it's because when you suddenly take away arterial perfusion to the nerve fiber layer, there's axoplasmic stasis. So the retinal nerve fiber layer opacifies in a sense, and that turns the nerve fiber layer white. And in relief of that, right in the middle, you see the fovea, which appears red in relationship or relative to the surrounding nerve fiber layer, which has turned white. I like the term axioplasmic stasis, and I'm going to try to work it into my everyday conversation on a daily (laughs) basis from now on. Um, So let's say we do our exam. We see that pale retina with the cherry red macula. Mm -hmm. So we're concerned about a central retina artery occlusion. Mm -hmm. Any other exam findings we're looking for on that? If you're really good, you might be able to see cholesterol or calcium embolus in the central retinal artery right where it emerges from the optic nerve. But those are pretty rare. Those are kind of hard to see. These cases, you'd have to figure out where this is coming from because these people typically have a reason for this, whether it's a carotid arterial stenosis or vegetations on a valve leaflet in their heart. It's really important to get the appropriate studies done to localize where the embolus is coming from. So these people are flicking off little plaques of cholesterol from somewhere, and now one has gone to their eye and occluded their retinal artery. So how quickly do we need to act on this, and what do we need to do to preserve their sight or give them the maximum chance of sight returning? Central retinal artery occlusion typically is very, very poor prognosis, meaning that eye is usually toast in terms of their visual prognosis for the future. 
and all efforts should be made in order to appropriately diagnose what the etiology is so that the patient, one, doesn't die or lose vision in the other eye or experience a stroke that debilitates them. In addition to looking for an embolus or a thrombosis, we have to rule out, again, GCA because there's overlap between giant cell arteritis and CRAO. It's one of the major causes. We have to rule out collagen vascular diseases and other hypercoagulable states and very rarely things like syphilis or Bechet's disease or sickle cell disease can cause these arterial occlusions as well. So needless to say, these people need a very thorough workup so that they don't lose more than just their eye. I feel like I've read about ocular massage and doing mm-hmm. things to try to loosen up those plaques and get them to disperse. Does that does that work or is that just I mean, an old wives' tale? There aren't any prospective studies or large enough studies. I think that there may be case reports in the literature that suggest that may have some merit. I know that certain institutions in the past couple of years, they've been trying like hyperbaric chambers to try to use that as therapy, but none of them have had very promising results. So basically, these patients were probably going to order a bunch of labs, make sure it's not temporal arteritis or something else that needs emergent treatment right now. Otherwise, yeah. we're mainly focusing on workup, such as carotid Dopplers and echo, other you know inflammatory disease workup, as you mentioned, and probably admitting these patients to get all that done. Exactly. And anterior chamber paracentesis, things that lower the pressure within the eye theoretically could work, but they're limited to anecdotal evidence, basically. Let's say we examine the patient, we do a good fundoscopic exam, and we're concerned this is a central retinal artery occlusion. How quickly do we need to have an ophthalmologist see them? For confirmation of that diagnosis, within a couple of days. But if you look in and there is a cherry red spot, sudden vision loss, the ophthalmologist is not the most important person in this diagnostic game. And I think that if you have a high degree of suspicion and the patient has the appropriate findings, it's more important that the patient gets the uh, workup started rather than waiting for confirmation from an ophthalmologist. Because at that point, there's not very much that the ophthalmologist can do. We mentioned the other cause of, or another cause of sudden painless vision loss is central retinal vein occlusion. Mm -hmm. So how do you differentiate this on exam and how is the management different? Central retinal vein occlusion, usually the vision's a little bit better, but I've seen some really terrible vein occlusions that leave patients in that hand motions, counts fingers, vision range. When you look into the eye, patients will have what ophthalmologists call a blood and thunder appearance to the retina. So when you look at the macula, it will not be this white sheet with a red dot in the middle. It's going to be just lots of intraretinal hemorrhages. It'll have a very messy, bloody appearance. So that's the primary exam finding that differentiates the two because both of them can have some degree of afferent pupillary defect. Both of them have pretty profound vision loss and pressure is not affected. So if you're able to get a a pretty good look at the fundus, the direct ophthalmoscope, it'd be pretty telling in terms of what it is. So we look in, we see this blood and thunder picture. We think it's a central retinal vein occlusion. What do we do for them? You should call ophthalmology, but if they have the blood and thunder appearance, you can get history of their medical problems, medications, history of hypertensive medications, and maybe oral contraceptives and diuretics. Check their blood pressure and get a set of labs. Essential retinal vein occlusion is typically a disease of older people, late 40s, 50s, people who have a history of hypertension and other comorbidities. But if a younger patient comes in, you have to consider things like syphilis. You might need to get an RPR or FTABS. 
ANA, things that would cause them to be hypercoagulable, like factor V laden, protein CNS deficiencies, antithrombin 3, and homocysteine levels. In terms of what you can do for the patients in the emergency room, it's more of getting the ball rolling in terms of finding answers as to why this patient ended up with a vein occlusion in the first place. So we're not specifically treating the occlusion, we're just working it up for hypercoagulable problems or inflammatory diseases, infections, etc., and then getting them follow-up in the next day or two with an ophthalmologist. Exactly, yeah. The primary prognostic factor for these patients with the vein occlusions is their visual acuity at presentation. So if somebody has very poor vision at presentation, like counts fingers at a couple feet, their vision, despite all treatments that the ophthalmologist can institute, will likely end up in a similar bad range. But if somebody comes in with 20, 80, 2100 vision, they have a pretty good chance at driving vision 20, 40 or better if treatment is started right away with the ophthalmologist. Now, this next case is not really an emergency, but it's something that we see not infrequently in the ED. Now, this one is a 70-year-old male who says he's had gradual painless vision loss and just noticed, particularly with reading and driving, maybe especially driving at night, that his vision just doesn't seem as good. And when you examine them, you can see kind of some cloudiness in their lens. So I'm figuring this is cataracts. My question for you is, is there anything else that we should be worried about with this kind of more indolent, progressive vision loss? Or is it pretty much always going to be straightforward cataracts? And how soon do they need to be followed up? A couple things that you need to think about in addition to cataract is one major thing really is the concomitant presentation of macular degeneration, the dry kind of macular degeneration. But if it's gradual and it's not a severe impairment of vision, it's likely cataract. And the patient can be followed up in a very non-urgent basis within a couple of weeks usually. But a couple of things that you can do to differentiate whether it's a cataract versus something else is use that trick with a direct ophthalmoscope where you set the beam on high with the widest beam possible and you encompass both eyes with the beam and you look through it and you look for a red reflex. People with cataracts will have a darkened central part usually of their red reflex because most age-related nuclear sclerotic cataracts start off becoming dense in the nucleus or the very center of the lens and it kind of spreads outward. So if, if the patient comes in and they're complaining about these symptoms and they say like, hey, my right eye is worse than my left and you get the direct ophthalmoscope out in a dimly lit room and you look at their red reflex and the right red reflex is slightly more irregular than the left, then you've diagnosed them with cataracts. Another thing you could do if you get a pinhole occluder, put that in front of their eyes and you get a near card and you shine a really bright light at the near card. You could force them to see a little bit better than they do without glasses. And you could kind of get a sense of their potential visual acuity through the cataract. And if by putting a pinhole in front of their eyes and then shining a really bright light on individual letters at, you know, near reading distance actually makes their vision clearer, then you've also clinched that diagnosis of cataract. Those are some great tips. Now, our final case, this is a classic EM sort of case. We have a 70-year-old woman who's working, cleaning something in her house and splashes some cleaner into her eye and comes in because now she has tearing, her eye is red, and she feels like her vision is decreased. 
So what do we need to do to evaluate and manage these patients? Before you even evaluate, you hear this story of something splashing in their eyes, you must immediately institute copious irrigation, basically, of their ocular surface. Uh, unless, that is, you expect that there's rupture or violation of their globe. So if there's suspicion of penetrating injury, hold off on it. But otherwise, you can use lactated ringers or saline or even tap water to really flush out the surface of the eye for several minutes. And if you have a Morgan lens, to make sure that as much of that fluid is entering the ocular surface as possible, that's ideal. So we'll numb them up with some topical anesthetic, pop the Morgan lens in, mm-hmm. flush them typically with, you know, a bag of saline or two. Yeah, and usually then, two. So a couple bags of saline flushing through, and, and then what, what should we do? You can wait five to ten minutes after the irrigation is stopped. And then if you have litmus paper, uh, you should check the pH of the ocular surface. Irrigation should continue until the pH is between 7 and 7.4, basically until the acid or base or whatever is on the ocular surface is neutralized. Can you talk for a minute about the difference between acid and alkali burns in terms of how they present or how they resolve or the potential loss of vision that can occur from acid or alkali? Alkalis are, I mean, some examples are like lye or cements and plasters and like powder from airbags and acids are like battery acid or vinegar. Acids tend to not penetrate as deeply into the ocular surface, whereas the alkali, the the basic agents, tend to saponify fats and therefore penetrate more deeply into ocular tissues. Either way, both need to be irrigated out copiously. The alkali burns tend to be a little bit more aggressive and tend to damage more ocular tissues and cause intraocular pressure problems. They tend to wipe out the stem cells around the limbus of the cornea. Basic burns tend to result in more ocular complications down the road. So what can we do or can we do anything to prevent that? Does that just mean more irrigation typically or just irrigating, checking with the litmus paper, irrigating some more and it just takes more irrigation? Yeah, just irrigating extremely copiously until the pH is neutralized. The basic substances tend to be more chunky and tend to lodge in the fornices. So in addition to copious irrigation, you would want to evert the eyelids and sweep the fornices with consuab and get, get out all the caustic material. Got it. For either case, or if we have an unknown agent that splashed them, we're going to first irrigate and then ask questions, mm-hmm. unless we're worried there was also a penetrating injury of the globe. Yeah. So we'll irrigate with a couple liters. We'll check the pH. If it's too high or too low, we'll irrigate some more. And then once we have irrigated copiously, we will take a good look, stain with fluorescein, look for abrasions, look for foreign yeah. bodies, try to sweep all those out. And then what should we send them home with? You can send them home with a cycloplegic, something that keeps them dilated, like cyclopenylate 1% or hematropine 5%. And both of those could be instilled two or three times a day. And these are typically to control photophobia and pain and inflammation. The thing that you'd want to avoid, however, is phenylephrine because it tends to constrict blood vessels at the limbus and prevent effective healing. Frequent preservative-free artificial tears. Most likely there's going to be an epithelial defect on at least the cornea and maybe some defects at the limbus and conjunctivus. So you always want to include a topical antibiotic 
to aid in healing and prevent secondary infection. Adequate pain control is also recommended as well. And for these kind of caustic burns with epithelial defects, do they need a fluoroquinolone drop or is the polytrim or erythromycin sufficient? Either or, really. The topical antibiotic could be fluoroquinolone or the trimethoprine polymyxin B combination. Usually the, the recommended dosing is like one drop four times a day. Could also use erythromycin or bacitracin. It's really to prevent a bacterial superinfection and considering that a epithelial defect is not really an ulcer, so there's nothing infecting the area yet. It doesn't really matter too much. It's most important to make sure that the patient's comfortable, inflammation is controlled, and that bacterial secondary infection is prevented. And then if we've irrigated, checked the pH, etc., do these people need to see an ophthalmologist that night, or can they go the next day? They can go the next day as long as the pH is neutralized by flushing. A note, though, with the, the antibiotics, we want to avoid ciprofloxacin in really large epithelial defects because it can crystallize and precipitate in the cornea. Oh, that's good to know. No, and that's only cipro, not the levofloxacin or gadifloxacin? Yeah. I prefer to use ocuflox or ofloxacin, but I know that ciprofloxacin in large epithelial defects can cause crystallization and precipitation, so cipro should be avoided. Well, Brian, thank you so much for being on GEMCAST and talking about this. These cases are not specific to older adults, certainly, except maybe the temporal arteritis. These are the kinds of things that we can see in patients of all ages. Any last things you would want ER docs to know? I think that if in doubt or if you're uncomfortable with something, it's it's always wise to just call the ophthalmologist on call or a local ophthalmologist because it's much better to have a little bit of input or a little help in diagnosis rather than being surprised the next day, especially with something as hyper subspecialized as ophthalmology. It's sometimes it's confusing and maddening when you think you have something correctly diagnosed and treated. And in fact, it turns out that it's totally wrong. <laughs> so absolutely. Uh, yeah, There's so, a lot of overlap with all of these things that we mentioned. So it's really, really hard to differentiate certain diagnoses. So always keep your local ophthalmologist on speed dial. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much again, and it's been a pleasure talking to you.